The Old Testament reading for this, the first Sunday in Lent, comes from the book of Genesis, the third chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. O come, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The epistle reading comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the fifth chapter. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And this is the word of the Lord. Be God. Rise for the reading of the gospel. And the Holy Gospel that serves as the text for our sermon this morning comes according to St. Matthew, the fourth chapter. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And this is the gospel of our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In our Gospel reading today, it is right after Jesus' baptism. Jesus, coming up from the water of the Jordan River, has the voice of the Father proclaiming that Jesus is the Son as the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. A glorious, triumphant moment that marked the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And from that glorious moment of triumph, we immediately move into danger and combat. After he descends upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit leads or drives out into the wilderness Jesus for a very specific purpose, to be tempted by Satan. Jesus is purposely put in harm's way. 
purposely taken to where God knows sinful temptation lies. And so when we pray to our Father, as Jesus taught us, lead us not into temptation, we are praying once again that what has happened to Jesus would never happen to us. So why was Jesus led into temptation? Well, to stand in our place. To stand beneath the devil's assaults. To go toe-to-toe with the devil's conniving wiles and stand firm where mankind fails. He was led there to face the onslaught of wicked, sinful temptation that each and every one of us face every single day. The temptation to disobey God's word, to seek your own way instead of God's, to take the easy way out. The devil and Jesus duke it out, Satan trying his best to get Jesus to disobey God, and Jesus standing firm and refusing to do so. And note how he does it. Note the strategy that he uses. He does not rely on his own strength. He does not try to convince his foe with scholastic footnotes. He goes to that most powerful of weapons, the sharpest of two-edged swords, the word of God himself. He wields that word with precision and accuracy, using just the right passage to say exactly what he wants in order to gain the upper hand and subdue his enemy. The word of God is used to make a point, to validate everything that he says and prove that he is right. He speaks the word of the Lord boldly, unapologetically, and he wields it like the powerful weapon that it is, striking directly at the heart of his ancient enemy, Jesus. Oh, did you think I was talking about Jesus there? No, 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 no. See, that's the scariest part of this passage. Notice how comfortable Satan is speaking God's word, quoting scripture, rattling off some proof texts to show that his point is correct. He knows the prophecies. He knows the word of the Lord, and he knows how to use it. Or more accurately, he knows how to misuse it, how to twist it around, how to make it fit his own evil satanic agenda. The word of the Lord is a powerful weapon, and in the wrong hands, misused by the devil and the world, it is a dangerous weapon indeed. You see, quoting scripture does not automatically make something valid. So often we think it does. Somebody will make a point and we'll say, I'm not so sure about that. And then they pull out a Bible verse and we're like, well, if they've got the Bible, it must be true. The fact is, you can pull out a Bible verse out of context and make it say anything that you want. The Bible has been used to defend and promote all sorts of awful things that the Bible does not defend or promote. The Bible is used to defend American slavery as a God-pleasing thing, which it most certainly was not. When Paul writes, slaves obey your masters, he was talking about something very, very different than the slavery that we know. The Bible is used to defend men who abuse their wives as they turn, submit to your husband, into a license for tyranny, saying, see, woman, this is what God says you have to do. The Bible is constantly quoted 
in support of homosexuality, polygamy, sex before marriage, and all sorts of other sexual sin that are clearly and categorically condemned in the parts of the Bible that they ignore. Preachers wrongly quote the Bible to claim that the Lord's Supper isn't the true body and blood of Christ, to claim that baptism is our work, not God's, to claim that a strong enough faith will defend you from any earthly harm or distress or sadness, to claim that you can name it and claim it and live your best life now, and that they have received a vision from God, and that vision means you should call the number on the bottom of your screen and have your credit card ready. (laughs) The fact is, many people abuse the word of the Lord and use it to say things that it does not say. Many people come up with something in their mind and then look to the Bible, pull a verse straight out of context, and then say, see, here it is in the Bible. So what I want to do is clearly what God wants me to do. The devil is very comfortable using God's word to deceive people, to trick people into doing sinful things. He quotes scripture when tempting Jesus. He asks Adam and Eve, did God really say? Because I'm sure that's not what he really means. Couldn't you look at it more in this light? And doesn't that make more sense? And isn't that more in line with what you want to do? He tries to convince each and every one of us that God's word means something different to everyone. That it isn't really the only way to heaven. That it changes with modern culture and it updates periodically and it's what we make of it. And we have to find the story behind the text. And that it doesn't really mean that we should stop doing all those wicked things that we really like to do. Because we like to do those things and God wants us to. We hear messages from professors, from teachers, from friends, from television. God gets us. So just keep doing whatever sin you're doing because that's okay. Scripture says that it's not wrong to do these things. And that part of Scripture that we don't like to hear, clearly that was written by man. That's not God's word. And that, dear Christian, is a terrifying thought. That the devil can mimic God, can use God's sacred word to try to lure you into sin and to get you to turn your back on your heavenly father. Just because it's quoted from the Bible doesn't mean it's quoted correctly. So how do we know? I mean, Jesus quoted scripture, but then again, so did the devil. How do we know who's right? How do we know when the Bible is actually saying what it says? Well, thankfully, God's word, being inspired infallible, holy, and perfect, it is amazingly consistent. God does not say one thing on one page and then the exact opposite on the next, despite what critics would want you to believe. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God is consistent, speaking his steadfast, unchanging word of truth from generation to generation. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How can we know who is using Scripture correctly? By knowing the Scripture thoroughly. By knowing that Scripture is cohesive and it is consistent. 
There's a rule that we're taught very early on in seminary that every Christian should be aware of. And the rule is simple. Scripture interprets Scripture. The easy, clear-to-understand statements, those help us to interpret the more complex, difficult passages. You don't start out in Revelation or Song of Solomon. Those are hard books, and there's a lot to dig into. You start with the basics, the alphabet of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the work, the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Simple, clear, concise, needing no deep interpretation. This is where you start. And any interpretation of Scripture that contradicts these simple truths, no matter how many footnotes and fancy-schmancy cross-references someone might give, if their interpretation does not fit the simple truth of Scripture, then it can only be one thing, wrong. By being in the Word, we can recognize when that Word of God is being abused. Not that we need to have the entire Bible memorized, although that would certainly be a fantastic use of brain space, wouldn't it? But we hear the word regularly, and we hear it in its full context. Not just taking a little bit here and there. We hear the full counsel of God. Come to a church that is faithful, and that holds the full word of God in high regard, instead of treating it like the backup band for whatever worldly message the preacher wants you to hear. Have the Bible present and active in your homes, with your children, with private devotions, with listening to faithful exposition of that word, instead of some slick-talking huckster who tells you what you want to hear. Read theological material that is known to be orthodox and sound, rather than whatever heretical fad some celebrity is pushing this week. To know the full truth of God's holy word is to protect yourself from being misled by Satan's lies, even when the devil quotes scripture to prove his point. There's an illustration that I use a lot in catechism class and in Bible study. In the art world, there are tons of forgeries. People looking to make a quick buck by pretending that this is seriously an original Van Gogh and you should pay them millions of dollars for it. And there are new ones popping up every single day. And so there are people who are specifically trained to identify the fakes and tell people, don't buy that. Stay away from that. That is clearly not the original. How do they do it? With new ones coming up each and every day, do they have to sit and look on the internet and say, ah, this is the one that was painted by Steve, and here's the one that was painted by Joe, and this one was around in the 1900s. Those are all the bad fakes. You can't do that. You can't possibly keep up with them. And so what they do is they know the original inside and out. They know it thoroughly, every brush stroke, every blemish, every little chip of the paint, every speck of dust that is on it. So that when they see one little thing that does not match, one brush stroke that goes counterclockwise instead of clockwise, they can say, this is not true. 
This, brothers and sisters in Christ, is what we do with the word of the Lord. We don't have to know whether it's modalism or Arianism or whatever ism we might want to call it. When we are familiar with the truth of God's word, we can recognize anything else as heresy. No matter how new and fresh it might be, no matter how shiny it might look, no matter how repackaged it might be from of old, by knowing the word of God deeply, in its truth, even the parts that offend or hurt our sinful egos, we can recognize when that word is being abused and misused. To know God's word, it is a blessing, not a burden. Not just in that you can recognize when someone is abusing and twisting that word, but because by that word alone, you have not just hope, but certainty about your salvation. You can know without a doubt that that unchanging word of God gives you the gift of heaven. Yes, the word of God, it offends our sinful nature. We don't want to hear that we're sinners. We don't want to hear that we're not the greatest being in the universe. We don't want to admit that there is a law that is higher than us, and we utterly fail to keep it. But when we recognize the entirety of God's word as certain, eternal, unchangeable, well then we can have absolute and full confidence, not just in his law, but also in the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can know without a doubt that he stood in our place beneath the temptation of the devil, and he stood fast where we fail. We can know without a doubt that he took our place beneath his own righteous law, fulfilling what we never could. We can know without a doubt that he suffered in our place upon the cross, bearing the wrath of God that we deserved, taking upon himself all of our sin and paying the penalty that should have been ours for our eternity. And we can know without a doubt that he rose again for us to give us the certainty of our own resurrection to eternal life, for we have been united with him in death and in resurrection. And we know because of this, because of his word, because he himself has assured us that he is coming again for us to take us to be with him in heaven, that perfect sinless paradise that he has prepared for us. All of this is the clear and certain word of God as it has been revealed to us in Scripture. The whole Scripture, not just a little bit here and there that we want to hear. And so because of that, because God's word is consistent, because that is the message that goes throughout the entirety of the Bible, we have firm confidence that even though we are sinners, we are the restored children of God. When the devil tempts us, we can recognize his deception and take refuge in the shelter of God's word and say that is not what our Lord would say. When the world tells us how we should think and act, we can recognize its lies and fend off its assaults with the mighty sword of the Spirit and say the word of the Lord endures forever. When our own sinful nature tries to convince us that God's word just isn't worth it, that we can do better, we can make up our own rules, we don't need those stuffy, outdated commandments, we can look to that very word of God and see the eternal glory that is ours and know that whatever price it may cost here in this world, it is absolutely worth it. Because that's the real power of God's word. 
It's not a club that we use to beat our enemies into submission. It's not even a weapon that allows us to stand toe-to-toe with the devil and challenge him to a duel. The power of God's word is that it forgives sinners like you and me. That it tells us of the unimaginable love that Jesus has for you. That it brings us the free and undeserved gift of everlasting life. God's word, in its glorious, inerrant, absolutely cohesive entirety, it assures you of the most important thing ever. That even though you are a sinner, by the cross of Jesus Christ alone, by his empty tomb alone, you are forgiven of all of your sin, and eternal life in heaven is yours. Thanks be to God. Amen.